Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Bernoy. And this is the podcast that deals with all things therapists, therapy-related, the things in our field that we like and the things that we've had long-standing suggestions for. And one of the things that I've long claimed is that therapy is a field that gets way too stuck in itself and doesn't take enough outside influence from different fields as far as how we look at things. And this is particularly discussion over the last couple of years, especially as there's a lot more focus on cultural impacts into things, being culturally competent, having cultural definitions of things. And a lot of this stems from fields like anthropology. And today's guest is Dr. Kristen Syme, who is going to share with us all sorts of wonderful knowledge that based on her research and We've been fans from afar for a while and really excited to have Dr. Syme at Therapy Reimagined 2021 as Woo-hoo! one of our speakers coming up. And so we're really excited to talk about kind of this role as far as how anthropology, mental health, and in today's podcast specifically around some ideas around suicidality. And we might get into some of the other work that Dr. Syme has done too, but thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. We are excited to have this conversation and excited to have you here and at Therapy Reimagined 2021. Just so excited to have this conversation. The first question that we ask everyone is, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? My name is Kristen Syme. I am an anthropologist. I I guess what I'm putting out into the world is I want, um, and this is just something I've long been interested in, is I want to challenge people in terms of their assumptions of reality. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> and that comes from just a long-standing interest in culture and sort of the the stories that our culture and our societies tell us. You know, when you look around the world, they turn out to maybe not be true. And so I just love confronting that dissonance that's out there in the world and sharing it with others and making people uncomfortable, I guess. <laughs> nice. I love it. <laughs> So for the the portion of our field that would immediately answer to what you just said is, how dare you? How dare you question our our truth? (laughs) From from your perspective, what do the mental health professionals often get wrong when conceptualizing some of the the stuff around reactions, things like conflict and, and depression and suicidality? Well, I think uh, something that is somewhat specific to the Western world, and by the Western world, I mean like North America, European 
you know, colonial history, Europeans, is that we focus on the self as like an agent and not enough focusing on or just attention to the networks, the social networks that we're embedded in and how, you know, so we have this view of depression and suicidality that it's really from within the individual, which is true, but it's also outside the individual. It's also what's happening in the outside world. And one is not more true than the other. That's sort of the main conflict, you might say, that I have in, with the, maybe the that conception of depression, suicidality, and other mental health conditions as well. Can you tell us more about this? Because I'm picturing Kentucky as being depressed as I'm hearing this, not to pick on our Kentucky listeners, but just picking a, a part of you know the U.S. that you know, is, you know, in, in a lot of measures behind the rest of the country when it comes to health and, and a bunch of other things. When you're talking about individual versus cultural depression here, can you help me understand a little bit more as far as how that is a two-way street there? Our view of depression, I might be jumping the gun a little bit, and psychological pain in general is that it's it's a signal in our body. Like, pain is a signal in our body telling us that we've been harmed, that there's something in, in our environment that's hurting us. Psychological pain is telling us that there's, is also telling us that there's something in our environment that's hurting us. It's often other people because humans are a highly social species. One of the most highly, the most highly social primate species. We help each other, but we also hurt each other a lot. We rely on each other, but sometimes people don't come through for us or we need things from people that they're not able to give us. And so, so this view of psychological pain, which is takes on many forms, including jealousy, anger, depression being one specific form, we can't separate those out. So it's not just that depression or psychological pain is within us, it's also external to us. It's, and it's very often because of others in our social environment. I'm thinking about this meme that went around and it was probably, I think it was in the before times before the pandemic. It was something like, you're not depressed. You're just surrounded by a-holes. So, <laughs> and, and it's an asshole. So maybe I should just say that, but I, I think it's something where to me, that's always been kind of how I view depression is that there, most likely there's something in your environment, whether it's your work environment or the people that you spend time with that is, at least impacting you, but historically and the way that the medical model definitely defines it, it's been about this chemical imbalance or there's been this, this thought process. And, and I like the way you just like very internal, it's the individual who is depressed. What is the problem with this idea of chemical imbalance or with the idea that someone internal, like that I am depressed? Why is that short-sighted? Or how do we, I guess, let, let me rephrase that. How do we know that's short-sighted? Wow. There's several ways to answer that. Um, <laughs> one way, the first, first of all, there's just no evidence for the chemical imbalance model. We can talk a little bit more about that later, but, but we actually know that and there's plenty of studies in, you know that show this especially work done by Kenneth Kendler it's adversity it's stressful life events that is probably the leading cause of depression mm -hmm. and so to focus on just the individual you're missing half the picture or you're missing what the actual cause 
of sure. the, the issue. So if you're, if you have your hand on a hot stove, you know, the issue isn't with pain. You're not going to take Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> and just to, keep holding on to the hot stove. Yeah, and just keep holding on. No, you have to, you need to let go. There's a problem if you're not feeling pain. And depression is very much like that, other forms of psychological pain too. So, like anger, jealousy, disgust, these are all informing us of things that we should be avoiding, getting away from, dealing with. To just say, okay, well, you need a pill for that. No, I, that is just, it, it actually gets into some ethical issues, especially if, say, you are being harmed by someone. Maybe someone's exploiting you or benefiting from you. And so, and that's actually what a lot of depression looks like. So, for instance, you know, the work case for depression is often made to fund depression research. You know, billions of dollars are lost because people are either showing up depressed work or they're not showing up to work because they're depressed. But one of the key reasons the leading risk factors for depression in the workplace is being bullied by superiors, not feeling like you're being rewarded for the job that you're doing. So even if we could find the perfect pill, because, you know, we have antidepressants, they're moderately efficacious. They're, they're not the, you know, but even if we did, you know, have that magic bullet, there are serious ethical issues potentially at stake there. <laughs> And one of the themes that we've been hitting on on our show a lot recently is about this individual responsibility for societal system sort of things that you're highlighting here, that a lot of our individual treatment ends up having this focus on making people okay with their situation or in getting into this ethics of like, are we just getting people to be okay with being bullied by superiors or being abused by family members or just subjecting themselves as and having depression just be an expression of that and you know i I say this like this is something new to our show but this is thematic for a very long time you brought up at at the top of the show about this being kind of a very western approach and i know that you've studied cultures all over the world how is this kind of held in comparison to cultures who might look at this more imbalanced or even more as a societal look at things? Yeah, it's interesting because in many languages, there's no, in fact, I don't think there is a direct translation for depression in any other language. So the concept of depression that we have comes directly out of Hippocrates. It's a direct line of descent from, you know, this, and it's also a very internal idea that it's from within the self, you know, so it started with, you know, there's some imbalance of black bile, you know, all the way to an imbalance of serotonin. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it, and it, it has little to do again, it's more about the internal rather than the external. But when you look uh, at different languages, you know, you'll find words that correspond to symptoms that are clearly involve depression. They'll describe like lethargy, lassitude, you know, feeling sick. So there's the somatic symptoms, you know, sadness, anger as well, but they'll often be tied to specific individuals in specific situations. So for instance, in Trinidad, there's this world, um, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing, I've never heard the word pronounced, but it looks like it's spelled tabanka, T-A-B-A-N-K-A. It's specifically, you know, it's associated with lethargy, low self-esteem, and um, it's specifically tied to men who have been left by their wives for another man. In Chukis, which is a culture I work with, 
there's this term called a muda moon, which is involves anger and despondency, and also is associated with behaviors like running away from home or refusing to eat. And it's specifically tied to situations where a younger person, usually a younger person, is in conflict with a higher status person, usually an older kinsman, and they're not getting what they need. And so they become a muda moon. And it actually means that they're inciting the pain that they feel into the person who they feel hurt by. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. So what I'm taking out of this is knowing English causes depression. That. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, it's it, there's this idea, uh, I think it's from the philosopher Ian Hacking of verbal contagions, that something didn't exist until someone said it existed. Now, that, obviously, that's not true. Um, depression, I believe that depression is universal. But different languages have different ways of slicing up reality. So it's not that, you know, depression doesn't occur in these cultures. Clearly, what's being described in these different type in these different words are clearly what we call depression. They're just more specific, more fine-grained. Whereas maybe we have this more abstracted term and that has to do with maybe the medical model and just our, our own history. Because words, they serve purposes in culture. So it just isn't the case. So in a lot of cultures, you know, they don't have a medical model. Now you might seek treatment for depression in other ways, especially when it's tied to somatic symptoms. You know, shamans, for instance, in many cultures, they treat the somatic symptoms of depression and anxiety, but also realizing that it has these other social causes. And in fact, a lot of what shamans do is help resolve social conflicts in addition to providing other sorts of medicine. So depression, it's not caused by the English language, but it certainly makes us think about it differently. Language, um, oh, I heard this great quote recently. I think Wittgenstein, the philosopher, said that language helps us go into, I'm going to get it wrong, but it, like language helps us to explore like other aspects of reality or other aspects of our mind. And that's kind of how I see it. When you're talking about the ways that people define depression so tightly, it's around, it's very situational, it's it's a pattern of behaviors that happen very, or, or symptoms or, or experiences that happen, whether it's a man being left by his wife or, or, or a young person being kind of bullied or, or not getting what they need from a person in a higher level of power. To me, it feels like that's 
a lot more helpful than kind of this blanket umbrella depression, you know? And, and I think I was thinking about the, the conversation Kurt and I had on an episode, it's called, is it burnout or depression? And for me, it was like, well, burnout is depression, but it's a specific type. And it's very, you know, mm-hmm. like there, there's a, it's a, it's a, a subset. So it sounds yeah. like, you know, that actually is kind of what you're talking about is, is looking at if it's situational, understanding what the situation is and how that situation impacts the individual and, and what all the context is, that's actually way more helpful. And, and we've been dancing around kind of the metal, medical model and, and the, the uh, chemical imbalance and the individual responsibility for kind of the structural concerns. But why do you think that we've gotten so broad in describing anything that feels bad and, and lowers our energy level and our level of self-esteem and just made this big umbrella depression like why I think why because we, why it's we so done that? common I think it's like <laughs> everyone is experiencing I think it's I think it's a testament to the modern world <laughs> like mm-hmm. just even if you've not have not been clinically depressed per se you haven't you haven't gone over that threshold most people do experience you know some symptoms mm-hmm. some of the time I just think it's so common that yeah, it's and we can all relate, and it's just something a lot of people can relate to. And the destigmat—I mean, I wouldn't say it's like totally destigmatized, but I think the fact that so many people are able are, are feeling more free to say, like, I feel depressed. That's mm-hmm. my impression. I might be wrong about that actually, but my impression is that people feel more free to say that now and to recognize, you know, to recognize those feelings. Like, I feel lethargic. I need to like step back and you know. Cause I'm feeling, you know, burned out. So yeah, I think there's a couple of things going on there, but I think it's something that is really common and pervasive. I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier, as far as you know, the not being evidence of chemical imbalances and getting a little bit more into that, because this seems to be something that is just readily accepted now in a lot of Western psychiatry and a lot of, of by extension, Western psychotherapy. Where, where are you coming at with this? This has got like some, some fighting the whole system here going on. Yeah. It's crazy because the idea that, that monoamines and an imbalance of monoamines are the cause of depression goes back to the first generation of antidepressants, which were discovered by accident actually, they just happened to have an impact on monoamines, on monoamine pathways. There are some issues there. So you can, there people or researchers have experimentally induced monoamine depletion, but it doesn't cause depression. Hmm. You take antidepressants and the chemical action works within minutes, but it doesn't work for several weeks. So there's something going on here where it's not just a simple chemical imbalance. And actually, if you go look, I recently went back to look at the old school Prozac commercials, you know, which is really the source. I wouldn't, I don't think it's the only source. There are several sources, but you know, the little pebble hopping along with the butterfly, it actually says, I'm pretty sure says depression isn't, there's like something at the bottom. It's basically like, not exactly like what we're saying. <laughs> it's not exactly <laughs> caused by disclaimer. Yeah, something where it's like we actually don't know what causes depression. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it's like, wow, I never noticed that disclaimer before, but I definitely remember just that, that rock um, being really bummed out and then hopping around with that butterfly after it took Prozac. So, Oh, how funny. (laughs) Yeah. In the, in the article I was reading, it was kind of the comparison of like a headache isn't a deficiency of aspirin. And I thought that was just like, whoa, duh. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And I, I think it's, I think it's been something where it's been so ingrained and taught to a lot of folks who are in the profession and, and, and potentially even medical doctors have become kind of complicit in this pursuing of medicine as the answer. And this isn't a chemical imbalance. Like it feels like this is, it was eye-opening to me. I mean, I, I don't know that I've been like pro-medicine all the way from the beginning. Like I, I think I've been, you know, if I've held it, I think appropriately within the, uh, in a treatment plan and I'm not a doctor, so I don't make that recommendation anyway, but, but what are the implications of this? Because it seems like we're not doing good enough treatment if we're getting something that's marginally effective and the, the incidences of anxiety, depression, suicidality is not going down. Yeah. And so what do we need to be doing here? Because it seems like we are, we are following a very wrong path if, if we're completely ill-informed or actively misinformed about depression at the very least, but certainly some of these other things, if we're looking at them as individual rather than systemic based. So what should we, what should we do? How do we fix this? I don't know. (laughs) I wish I, I wish I knew, but it's sort of like one of these, it's kind of like how we all know the DSM is a poor, you know, construct of mental disorders, but we just, everyone just keeps using it. You know, we just kind of keep chugging along with it. I think doctors have known, you know, at least some doctors have known for some time that, you know, the chemical imbalance isn't exactly true. There was um, one person who called it, this was back in the early 2000s. He can't remember who it was, but the psychiatrist called it a metaphor. And so we'll just keep using this metaphor of chemical imbalance. And I'm like, I don't think, of course, most people aren't thinking of it as a metaphor. They're taking it literally. And, and I don't know I don't know what to do about it. I wish I knew, but it's just, you know, like there are these narratives in society, these stories that are told and perpetuated. And I think the only way to, you know, confront or combat those stories is just to tell a new story. Even beyond depression, some of your other articles that that we've seen, and I believe that it was the first one that I came across your research was around, this doesn't just apply to depression. There's a lot in the DSM that's just people having reactions to situations that when you kind of look at it, it kind of makes sense. Like, oh, people are going to be weird after being at war. Like that's (laughs) makes sense when you put it that way. What, what has been kind of the, the reaction that you've been seeing from more of your work being put out there in kind of some of these pop psychology or general articles, I've seen, you know, Joe Rogan tweet your articles before. So like you're developing a little bit of a a following. I'm sure that there's some responses that you're getting there too. 
You know, it's shockingly mostly positive. That was not the case a couple years ago when it first started, especially with the suicidality stuff. Um, I think one commentator referred to me and my uh, PhD advisor, Ed Hagen, as psychopaths. Oh, wow. (laughs) Which I was kind of like, I, you know, you hit a nerve and it's like, wow. I mean, I didn't like that, but I was also kind of like, you know, I definitely took that in, but it's gotten better. I think, especially as I've published more and as we published more, just sort of refining, like clarifying what it is we're actually saying as opposed to, because people will hear the, you know, hear us say like depression is not a disease. And we're thinking, they're thinking that we're trying to say, well, you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You know, they're, they're, yeah, you know, jumping to conclusions that we didn't necessarily that we didn't say aren't arguing for, but that's going to happen when you're saying something new, because, you know, the chemical imbalance model, one of the goal from advocates and drug companies, they wanted to destigmatize it so poor people would, it would be prescribed, but, you know, advocates who, whose hearts were in the right place, you know, they thought it would, it would work by making it more like, you know, it's not your fault if you get pancreatic cancer. So it's not your fault if you, you know, get depressed and we're not saying it's your fault either. So somehow if you're saying in some people's minds, if you're saying X, it therefore means Y. And so just, just needing to clarify those things. And it has, I, I think we've gotten better and I've gotten better at communicating what it is we're actually saying and what it is we're not saying. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. So I'm now super curious about the suicidality stuff that meant that you were a psychopath. So <laughs> tell us a little bit more about what you found about suicidality. So, well, the theory that, that I've worked on is that, and hold on to your hats, because this is what, uh, it, it can be framed in different ways, but what, we're on, but what we're saying is that it's a credible, it's an honest signal of need. Okay. Now, why? <laughs> now, why would that be like, terrifying to people because another way to put it that people don't like, but it's just sort of a a flip side is that it's a form of blackmail Mm. that you're signaling, like, I'm going to, I'm going to hurt myself. If you don't help me, if you don't give me attention, I hate that terminology because I, I've actually heard it used by people who I'm explaining it to. And they're saying, Oh, you know, uh, teenage girls who attempt suicide, they just want attention. I'm like, how, did you not hear anything I just said? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, because I, I feel that too. I'm like, that's not what I mean at all. It's not because maybe they do need attention. And what's wrong with that? Maybe they're being neglected. But the work that I've done looking at suicide, suicidality, and actually what we're talking about here isn't suicide death, which is far less common than mm-hmm. suicidality, being suicidal ideation, threats of suicide and suicide attempts. So I think for women in the U.S. aged about 20 to 25, there are 100 suicide attempts for every one suicide death. So some people, so that's some people have been like, oh, drama queens. And I'm like, um, why aren't we talking more about like why women feel like they have to send these kinds of messages 
to be helped, to get the help they need. And when you actually look at what causes suicidality, it's assault, sexual assault. In my data, it was forced marriages, which is, you know, essentially a form of rape. It's like you're being exploited by your family. Oftentimes you're being forced into a marriage to that they're getting some benefits at your expense. And so why is it that women are sending, you know, have to send these messages because they're being exploited and abused. And yeah, I think that I don't have a problem saying that, that, (laughs) but I think it scares people. Like people just have a, 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 they just automatically feel like, oh, if that person doesn't really want to die, then, you know, then they trivialize it. But in my mind, they're actually just making people have to send stronger signals that they want to die to get help. It seems like a really common thing through your research is that you're pushing back against these universal explanations of everybody's human behavior ever into really simplistic terms. That what you're saying is that humans are complex and that there's a lot of reasons that people do a lot of different things. Yeah, And I'm wondering, you know, as I'm kind of coming to this conclusion about all of your life's work, but um, just to to nutshell it, (laughs) just to nutshell this. Yeah. I'm wondering if if this is just kind of like an inherent in Western academia of, you know, trying to come up with these global truths that are supposed to apply to everybody. And that's where a lot of these disagreements come from is that because we're you know, whoever has the loudest research or whoever has the the broadest definition of everything that kind of fits everywhere, that that gets held as truths within academia that then gets passed on to each subsequent generation of students and is just kind of accepted as fact. Yeah. And that's especially problematic when, yeah, because we want to come up with, you know, the theory or the explanation. But one issue with that, too, is that a lot of these, you know, sweeping explanations of, say, suicidality are based on white European samples. And yeah, they get passed down. And then it turns out, you know, maybe that when you look elsewhere, that that those theories aren't really supported. Or, or even taught as like, well, here's ways that other cultures don't fit into this model that's being held as the universal truth. That, uh, And I, I think some of academia is getting a little bit better about this, but it, so much of, of cultural education, especially in Western mental health education, seems to be here's the rule and then here's these other cultures that just kind of have their own things that don't fit within the rule. Yep. (laughs) Yes. The other, the other sort of, um, you know, the exoticized other who is a little bit quirky or, you know, the, you know, there's sort of the Western model and then there's the, you know, maybe there's this, you know, they'll be presented as some, you know, far flung, you know, tribal group who, you know, does things a little differently. And that's just, you know, oh, humans are complex. Um, But then it's never really absorbed into the theory or into that discipline. I just keep coming back to this idea that the way that we're trained has been extremely short-sighted, very monolithic and looking at a single culture and applying it way too broadly. And, and I just keep thinking of the, the big pharma war chests that are benefited 
by therapists not doing what we can do to resolve the actual contextual problems so that people keep coming to medicine that is a Band-Aid that actually isn't solving the problem. And so to me, I think... And I, I'm trying to see if I'm getting to a question here because we are, I could, I feel like I could talk about this all day, but we are getting to, to, to the end of our, our episode here. But I, I'm, I'm just curious, is there, you know, whether it's with, you know, kind of talking about the shamans that solve the contextual issues as well as provide medicine and stuff like that, is there, are there places where people are doing a better job than in kind of the Western psychological treatment tranche of people like is there some is there a model for us to look at where people are actually doing a good job at this that's a great question i don't know and maybe um someone an anthropologist has written about this and i haven't seen it but yeah i don't you know because anytime you say oh this is the model Mm -hmm. you know you're gonna find holes you're gonna find you know it doesn't work for everybody or someone's abusing their power or you know maybe it worked for this Mm -hmm. person but not that person I really, I, in my mind, the way forward is just to look at different models because we're not going to be able, you know, those models, they work for those cultures in that context. Sure. Um, usually they're, they're smaller societies where people are living with kin or, you know, they're not highly structured, you know, corporate <laughs> environments per sure, se. Sure. But yeah, I think uh, the way forward is just to look at a range of examples and, and maybe, you know, it coming up with something novel potentially, because we are living in this world that is novel. I mean, there's mm-hmm. novelty all around us, um, yes. at, like evolutionarily novel, um, also within our lifetimes, novel ways of interacting, like what we're doing right now. So, yeah, I think it's going to involve um, creativity and, and just uh, exploration. And I think even from a policy and implementation approach it's giving the freedom to individually treat people with a lot of these contexts that a lot of policy sort of decisions are you know here's a novel problem throw cbt at it that doesn't take into effect a lot of these kinds of things nor necessarily like which aspects of cbt that's several different episodes that we'll (laughs) have down the road but uh but it's it's treating everybody as if they're monolithic parts of the the same culture with the same cultural influences. Mm-hmm. Where can people find you and follow your kind of work? So I still haven't set up my website, so I don't have a website, but I've been meaning to get to it, <laughs> but <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I am on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, I think it's just my name, Kristen Syme. Um, I'm also on Google Scholar. So I put everything up on Google Scholar. Um, you shouldn't have any access issues. There's no paywall. It's all it's all there. So nice. yeah, follow me. I'll follow you back. And we'll include links to those on our show notes at mtsgpodcast.com and get your tickets to Therapy Reimagined 2021, where Dr. Syme will be uninterrupted by us won't be having us crack jokes all throughout and digging in deeper and digging in deeper very excited to be having that september 23rd through 25th and check out our website therapyreimaginedconference.com to see what format that we ultimately end up in this year we're 
hoping to have some people there this year and who knows where we're going to be at with COVID guidelines at that time. So for the most up-to-date, check out our websites, follow us on our social media. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Renoy and Dr. Kristen Syme. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 